cloud. So welcome everybody to uh, rationalism and mysticism. I'm just going to pull up my notes um, from Google Docs. And so I'll be very honest with you guys. I think, let me just, sorry, let's see. So this class is really, you know, in previous years, what I've done is I've given class that's mostly parasha or Tanakh based. Last time we did, um, we did Kohelet. That was a lot of fun. And this year I decided, you know, I want to do something that is also somewhat text based, which is Rabbi Slifkin's uh, sources. And he has amazing sources. Um, and but I also wanted to do something that's more freestyle, something that it could be more discussion based because I, I never want to lecture. I never want to be somebody hearing my, my I mean, everyone knows I love to hear myself talk, but I want to hear from you guys. I want to have everybody engaged and involved. And I really want it to be an interactive discussion, both with the people in person and the people on Zoom. Um, I think it'll be a lot of fun. You want to show me how to. Oh, hey, there, uh, here we go. There we go. OK, so you guys on Zoom, I hope you can hear me OK. Um, yes. So without any further ado, let's begin. The first source that I that I brought is a story. And I, I'm sure Danny knows this story because you've probably read her by Faur before from uh, Horizontal Society. So, so listen closely. Let me actually share my screen so that you guys can see it on Zoom. Um, share screen, share. So uh, you guys can see that, Dr. Nasser and, and Victor, you, you can see the screen, I hope. Um, so listen yeah, I got up to the story. Yeah, this is how he begins so horizontal society. It's an amazing story. Once there was a master who would give classes on high philosophy and love of God. During these classes, the temple cat would crawl affectionately into the laps of the students, distracting them. So to help their concentration, the master would tie the cat to a tree outside the temple and then release him after the class. Right. So there's this cat that wanders in and then the, the, the guy said he's distracting my students. Let me tie him to a tree. One day the master passed away, but his successor continued to tie the cat to the tree out of devotion to the memory of his master. So the, the next generation, they said, it was, you know, my Rebbe did it. Let me do it, too. Um, sometime later, the cat also died and another cat was procured and tied to the tree during class. Right. So the next generation, they went out of their way to find the cat in order to tie it to a tree, which is amazing. The next generation of the lineage began to debate the spiritual powers achieved by tying a cat to a tree outside of philosophy classes. And the next master in the, in the line wrote a thick book of theological speculations on the essential esoteric practice of cat tree tying. The following generation, of course, changed the lineage's seal to an emblem of a cat tied to a tree, right? And then he ends it with much of contemporary Jewish learning concerns the holy cat. So I love this because it shows you, you know, so easily how uh, Judaism could have formed to be what it is today, how so many of our practices could have become what they've become. And of course, you have the Ikad and the Tafel, and we could always debate, you know, what's, you know, how much should we keep? Can you ever talk about religion in a vacuum? These are all important things. But, you know, this class is, is titled Mysticism and versus Rationalism, or Rationalism versus Mysticism, based on Rabbi Slifkin's new book uh, by that title. And I thought that, you know, in recent uh, years, anyone who knows me knows that I've been very into meditation. I'm very into a lot of that 
more spiritual stuff. But I still, I'm in medical school. I, I still consider myself a skeptical person. I still consider myself a person who wants to really believe in things based on evidence for the most part, based on, you know, analytical reasoning. Um, so that brings me just to before we really delve into the other stuff to the, the word epistemology. So who could give me what they think the word epistemology means? Because when I heard this word a few years ago, I was like, you know, this is a really important concept that is almost prior to anything you can pr possibly speak about. So what do, what do you think it means, epistemology? Yeah, it's a, it's a great word. So it, it's, it means the nature of knowledge and where it comes from. So the way I think about it is the study of the study of. So studying how we study things. Could there be anything more important than that? Because even science already itself is, is studying things based on certain ideas like empiricism and logic and things like that. But the scientific method, exactly. But unless you understand that there's a way we study things and philosophy might not do things the same way science does it. And, you know, uh, there's different types of sciences like social sciences versus hard sciences and different things are going to go about understanding the world in different ways. So I'll, I'll just read you what Wikipedia says from Greek episteme knowledge uh, is the branch of philosophy concerned with knowledge. Epistemologists study the nature, origin and scope of knowledge, epistemic justification, the rationality of belief. Right. So this is very important. How rational are the things that we believe in already? and various related issues. Epistemology is considered one of the four main branches of philosophy, along with ethics, logic, and metaphysics, right? So those are the four branches of modern philosophy, ethics, logic, metaphysics, and epistemology, right? So this is, to me, this is so interesting because this is something you never taught in school because how annoying would it be if, you're, if your teacher has to justify everything she says really to ground zero? She kind of has a lot, or he has a, a lot of leeway in a lot of what they're teaching, All right? And debates in, within epistemology are usually based on four different things. One of them is philosophical analysis about the nature of knowledge, the conditions required for belief. The second one is potential sources of knowledge and justified belief, like perception versus reason, memory, testimony. Something so interesting I heard a couple of years ago is that you look in the Gemara, and it tells you a certain uh, anatomy of the female reproductive system. And you, you read it, and it's nowhere near what we, we know today. Or maybe it's somewhere near, but it's not the same as what we know today to be the female reproductive system. And I know because I you know, cut open cadavers in medical school. So I know what the female anatomy is today to some degree. And it's not what's in the Gemara. So th the question is, how could this be? Well, the answer is, is amazing to a 21st century mind like yours, which is that in those days, they didn't think that you needed to find truth through empiricism, which means they didn't think you need to, needed to actually go and observe it. Instead, what did they believe? Rationalism. Rationalism means that you could deduce things just based on things that you think make the most logical sense. So they didn't even bother to go and cut up a cadaver. Instead, they just accepted it based on rationalism. To me, that's unbelievable. Because already today, as a 21st century uh, American, you accept, you know, automatically that, okay, obviously the way to understand things is through experimentation, is through seeing what happens, but not so 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, according to a lot of those scientists, the best thing to do was rely on what do you think makes the most sense. Those are two different things. You think logic and empiricism are the same. They're not. So to me, that's just unbelievable. That completely changes the way 
that you approach truth in general. Right. So that's really interesting. The next one is the structure of a body of knowledge or justified belief, including whether all justified beliefs must be derived from justified foundational beliefs or whether justification requires a coherent set of beliefs. So does something have to be consistent or not? Or can it have paradox? So my good friend, Meyer Ben, who I, I think I quote him like every recording. I don't, Meyer. this is uh, Meyer's uh, sister. <laughs> and I don't think Meyer listens to the recordings anyway, so he won't find out, find out unless Victor Zakai or you tell him. Um, but basically he recommended a great book to me, uh, The Master and His Emissary, talking about the different hemispheres of the brain. And that the left hemisphere of the brain and the right hemisphere of the brain go about understanding the world completely differently. So the left hemisphere of the brain is very good at being analytical. If you've read Rabbi Sachs's great partnership, he talks about the same thing. It's very good at separating the world into discrete things and understanding them separately. The right hemisphere understands instead that there are no separate things. There's, that's really kind of an illusion. Really, everything is continuous. Everything is ultimately connected to one another, and you, therefore you can't connect them. So the right hemisphere is much more okay with paradoxes than is the left hemisphere. And, you know, a lot of spirituality and a lot of these mystical things come from a lot of paradoxical truths. So one example that this is going to, this might get me kicked out of the shul, but it'll be between us and whoever wants to listen to this recording. So the idea of, you know, what is God and how do we understand God and where does God end and where do I begin? So on the one hand, you might want to say, I'm a separate being from God and God created me. But then there's the question of how could you say I'm separate from God if God is infinite? God has no boundaries. And then you'll say something like Simtsum, that God kind of, you know, subtracted of himself. Well, that's kind of a philosophical impossibility. How could an infinite being subtract of themselves? So then you might want to say, okay, so then I'm continuous with God. And then so now you have a little bit of a paradox. So, So on the one hand, in the mystical experience, this is something that's documented by people who either have taken LSD or people who will have a, a long time of meditation. On the one hand, you'll feel like you're, you're having this mystical experience and you'll think of it as all of it is doing me. There's this process happening throughout all of nature and I'm continuous with it. So Danny, do you, are you beating your heart right now? Are you consciously beating your heart? It's just happening, right? Are you, you know, are you secreting the adrenaline from your adrenal gland? No, it's just happening on its own. But so in that, but, but it's you, it's also you. So you start to see there's kind of, on the one hand, everything is, you're kind of, it's all doing you. And then that basically you are in a sense, just the observer of all that. And then on the, on the other hand, you could think of it as I'm doing all of it. There is no light shining into my eye unless my eye is there to, to, to shine it in a way. Because you could, you could say maybe, okay, the cosmos would go chugging right along without human beings being there, right? There would be a cosmos even, before, even without a human observer. But then you might have to redefine how you define cosmos. Because the only reason you're calling it that is based on your human perspective right now. The tree falls. Exactly. I was waiting for somebody to say it. It's exactly that, that if the tree falls in the forest, you know. So there's this whole paradox of uh, and, and trying to understand who am I? Where am I? Am I continuous with all of it? I'm, am I doing all of this or is it doing all, all of me? And on the other hand, you know, you could think about it. Okay. My brain and my mind are in the universe, right? There's this whole universe and my brain is included in that universe. But on the other hand, the whole universe is happening in my brain. 
I have no way of knowing that there's this whole universe unless my brain is there to know. So it's the same thing. All right, so you start to see that there, you have to kind of be okay with these paradoxes, with these things that are a little bit contradictory and a little bit all this way or all that way, or maybe they're both the same. And that's kind of what the right hemisphere is more at peace with and the left hemisphere has more trouble with. Um, and then the fourth one is, is philosophical skepticism, which questions the possibility of knowledge and related problems, such as whether skepticism poses a threat to our ordinary knowledge claims and whether it is possible to refute skeptical arguments. All right, so we'll leave that alone for now. But that's just a general course on, on uh, epistemology, because I think if you're going to be, you know, get to that next level of philosophy, it's important to familiarize yourself just with that definition and just understanding what is even my starting point? And let me just acknowledge from the get-go that no matter what I say or what I think, it's automatically going to be a relative truth because I'm the one who's saying it, right? So anybody who wants to say, I know what the absolute truth is and it's this is automatically lying to you. Why? Because they can't possibly know that, right? That, that you know, you're the one who's saying it, right? So it's therefore a relative truth. Um, now, don't ask me about how do we understand a lot of these absolute truths from God. And, and, and that, to me, is something that is, you know, the best way I'll put it is that the deepest truths of reality cannot be put into words. Because reality isn't words. Reality is, you know, it's this thing, right? So there's the famous story of, like, the I'm sorry to get a little bit Eastern on you. If anybody has a problem with it, really let me know after the class. <laughs> but uh, th there's a famous story of a guy who goes to his guru and uh, the guru picks up a stick and he says, who can tell me what this is? So one guy says stick. He goes, not wrong. The other guy takes the stick and hits the guru with it. <laughs> and the guru says, OK, very good. You graduated to the next level. Right. So what does that mean? That that in the reality of things is not words. We like to put words and, and talk about reality. But when you do that, you're talking about reality. The best way to really connect with reality is to experience it. So some of my best friends often tell me, all right, Michael, now it's your time to be quiet because you just proved to yourself that it's, there's no reason to even speak in the first place. And uh, again, to get Eastern on you and forgive me, and the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu says, he who says it does not know. He who knows it does not say. That if you're saying something, by definition, you don't know anything because if you're saying that you know the truth, then you don't have it because if you're claiming, oh, now I know the truth. Anyone who says that already is, has no idea what it's talking about because the truth is not something you can know. It's not something you could ever wrap your head around. It's not something to be understood with the left brain. Instead, it's something to be understood with the right brain and experienced. So, but he who, he who says it does not know, he, he who knows it does not say. So, and yet, and yet, so just to defend the rest of all the words that I'm going to be saying, including these, he writes the whole Tao Te Ching. But I don't understand. Didn't you just say that you, you shouldn't even speak any words? Well, the point is, it's as long as you know that the words you're saying aren't absolute truth, it's okay. But just acknowledge that from the get-go. So I thought it was important for me to go on all this. Some people, when they hear me say all this stuff, they, like my brother, he tells me, this is just a waste of time. What are you saying all this stuff for? For me, this is like Gan Eden. I'll be very honest with you. I love talking about all whatever we just discussed in the last 10, 15 minutes is really like candy for me because it's so interesting to notice my biases, to notice, because to me, this is really the pathway towards understanding where I'm limited and it's the pathway towards God because God is fundamentally the non-ego. God is fundamentally 
that which you cannot wrap your head around. God is that which is completely not able to be understood. So how do, there's a beautiful, uh, you know, of course, passage in the Torah, the very beginning of the Torah. After Adam and Hava are kicked out of Gan Eden, what happens? What is God placed there? Good. And what does it say, Bede Kirubim? What do they have in their hands? Swords. Good. Does anybody know the Hebrew of it? Daggers, actually. I it's headed. So it's Lahat That God gives these Kirubim, these cherubs, these like angelic beings, these flaming swords that are spinning around constantly. And it says, So what happens? Adam and Hava, uh, of course, they ate from Etz Hadat. It was a problem they ate from Etz Hadat, but Etz Hayim was a separate tree, right? In the midst of the garden. There was Etz Hayim Betoch And Hashem told Adam and Hava from the very beginning, what was the first commandment? Everyone thinks the first thing to Adam and Hava is don't eat from Etz Hadat. That's not true. It's mikol etz hagan achol tochel. Whatever you want to eat from all the trees of the garden, eat. Fadalu. So that includes etz hahayim. So they were supposed to enjoy etz hahayim. But what did they do? They ate from etz hadat, which was not allowed. So it's a separate tree. And then once they ate from etz hadat, God says, uh-oh, maybe now that he's eating from etz hahayim, from, from etz hadat, Maybe now he'll eat from Etzachayim. So now I need to kick him out. So it became a problem to eat from Etzachayim after eating from Etzadat. Before eating from Etzadat, no problem. Eat, eat from Etzachayim. But after eating from Etzadat, uh-oh, we cannot allow him to eat from Etzachayim. To me, this is an unbelievable story. Probably my favorite in the whole Tanakh. What a mind-blowing thing. And, and, and so I'll try to tell you what I think it means. I think it means that etadat made us it made us able to discern good and evil. And the way Hanambam thinks about that is that it, it, we became subjective. We became understanding the world through an ego perspective. And now that we're understanding the world from an ego perspective, if we're going to want to understand the world again, as if from the point of Shekin and Emet, of absolute truth, it's going to be a big issue because now we're, our ego is going to get in the, in the way and we're going to be completely skewed and we're going to be completely subjective and biased. So now it's a problem to eat from Etzahayim. And of course, all the Hachamim will tell you, like, the Torah is the Etzahayim. And, and therefore, to engage in Torah from an egotistical perspective, from an egocentric perspective, is the worst thing you can do. Or even furthermore, to try to find truth from an egocentric perspective will lead you to the opposite of truth. So for me, this is the most interesting thing in the world. And now, what does this mean? The lot, the height of a metapechet. So is any, if, you ever, if you've ever seen like a, an airplane propeller, from like, you know, on FOSS, as they say in radiology, front on. If you see the, the airplane propeller, if it's going really, really, really fast, what does it look like? It looks like it's solid, right? It looks like a wall almost. You, you don't really see the propeller anymore. You just see solidity. So what, what that means is in order to get into Gan Eden, you see a wall, you see a brick wall, it's solid. Unless you know... That, that it's really just a lot of and if you're going fast enough, you can somehow sneak in 
you can kind of sneak into that mystical experience if you're going in the right way. But if you're just relying on your ego perspective, you're going to say, oh, there's no way in. But the second you drop that and remember like, okay, actually this, this is kind of an illusion. Let me sneak in. Or you have eyes for your camera. Or you have eyes for your camera, exactly. Victor, Victor Gindi can tell you all about that. Um, so to me, this is an unbelievable passage because to me, I mean, maybe I'm again, subjective and biased and egotistical where I'm fitting it all into everything that I want to say. But so why are you saying it's a problem that he looks forever? Ah, so, so, nine years, also, so that's a fantastic question. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think... Well, I think everybody's going to think he's right. Gonna yeah, I, I don't wrong. know. I, I think it's a fantastic question. I think eating it, eating from the Etzahayim and thinking that, that now you're God, in a way, is the problem. That's the best way I could say it, is that the way that, that I've heard it put is like this, where, you know, and uh, of course, uh, Yeshu, what did he do? He had this whole thing, and he thought that he was God, and he went around, and I mean, maybe it's not historically accurate, but, you know, suspend your disbelief. Maybe Jesus did that. Maybe he went around saying he was God. And then what happened? They crucified him because in our Western culture, that's not allowed. To claim that you're a manifestation of God is completely taboo, even though we do say this, the idea of Selem Elohim. But in the Eastern traditions, what happens? Somebody meditates for 47 years, and then all of a sudden they wake up one day and they, they say, oh my God, I just realized I'm, you're God and I'm God. And, and, I'm God. and they go, they say, yeah, have a seat. Join, join everybody else. We're, we're about to start meditating. That's the difference between Eastern and Western philosophies, I think. And to me, I think the Torah is very much in line with this, this warning towards a Westerner who might get Jerusalem syndrome, which is they go to Jerusalem and then they start getting all messianic and saying, oh my God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. And what, what's the thing is that they, they think God chose them specifically to, and they're special. And then the whole point is, I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're not special. It's very hard. To, I, I, of course, we all think we're, I think I'm special. Of course, my mom told me last night before I, when I was crying myself to sleep before my test, she said, Michael, you're very special. And I, I accepted it. But, but you guys aren't special. I just want you to know. But uh, no, of course, I'm kidding. I think we, it, it, that's the thing is that from one perspective, everyone is unbelievably special and unique. But from another perspective, no one's special because we, we should all be humble enough to realize we're all that. So you could either say everyone's special and no one's special, and you'll be right in both ways. So that to me is, am I getting too crazy here? You can let me know if I'm, uh, if I sound, if I sound insane. <laughs> other, other, other comment I forget. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Why they wrote a long book. Yes, you're right. It's subjective truth, but a subjective truth is better than no truth. Ah, yes, 100%. And, and it might get you, it might help you sneak in to that experience. Yeah. yeah I mean, one of the problems when you say you're special, so you using that as being a privilege, mm. but the Hakamim never used it that way. So when you, you the way you're using it, you're implying the Hakamim meant what you're saying. That really meant to have a responsibility, mm. special have a responsibility. Never meant to be privileged. Yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not saying so, what the Hakamim. I'm not exactly, speaking in their name for sure. God, God, forgive me. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely not. Um, I just want to make sure I'm recording. Uh, here, let me just see. Sorry. Yes, it is recording. Okay, great. But yeah, I, I'm definitely not speaking for the hachamim. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really 
Yeah, I'm real. I'm really only speaking uh, from my own mind. But yeah, the hachamim. Yeah. With the with the guru. Oh yes. So, so our stories in the Gemara, and definitely they're not accurate according to modern day physics. Ah, we're going to get to that in future classes, but yeah. But sometimes there is a moral message, and our complaint is that the message is valid, the mechanism is not accurate. Uh -huh. So that's a problem we have sometimes. Right? Yeah. And other cases, so they have, they like to say, everything is a Quran. Yeah. So they ask, which way is the river flowing? So it brings in Pasuk. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's go and look. So they're not, if it's possible to verify, they'd like to verify. Mm -hmm. But after you verify and you see which way the river is flowing, why do I need a Pasuk to tell me which way the river is flowing? You're right. Exactly. And I think that's the point. Hundred percent. So Rabbi Slifkin is going to discuss all of what you're saying, and it's perfect because he's going to talk about it in the context of when the hachamim say things in the Gemara or elsewhere that are, you know, just scientifically inaccurate or medically inaccurate. What do you? What do we do with that? So we'll, that, keep that keep that in mind. Very good. Very good point. Um, so I just we'll continue now uh, with one more thing before we we hit on uh, some of Rabbi Slifkin's stuff. Um, so William James, anybody recognize that name from high school, college? I think so. He's also a psychologist. Yeah, very good. He's the father of modern psychology. I'm pretty sure that that if you go to a psychology class and anywhere, you know, these days, they'll they'll quote William James as the father of modern psychology. I I I think so. I'm pretty sure that's who they attribute it all to. But I could be wrong. He lived from 1842 to 1910. So he was an American psychologist. He wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And he wrote, one may say truly, I think that personal religious experience has its roots and center in mystical states of consciousness. So he's saying something very important. So the reason I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this is because Rabbi Slifkin is very rational. He's a big rationalist. And he wrote this book to try to you know, preserve rationalism, but also not to put down mysticism. That's what he says. He says Mysticism is important as well, but I just want to show that rationalism is very valid. But before I even delve into that, I think a lot of us are, you know, being in Sephardic synagogue, we've been raised as very rationalistic people. And I just want to show that there is something to mysticism that is somewhat valuable, even if you're a rationalist, you know, to understand that you could balance both elements. And I try to do that in my own life. And, you know, I invite all of you guys to, to pick up some degree of of mysticism in your life because it might just add that that extra spark that's missing from your very rationalistic Maimonidean lifestyle if you know if you're like me and that's the way I kind of used to be so he says that you know what is so now he says that that quote of of this of uh, religious experiences being mystical so what is a mystical state of consciousness so he he says the word mystical and mysticism are used very often pejoratively they're used as put downs um, and they're referencing things that are regarded as vague, overly sentimental, and woolly-minded. Um, but really, he believes that could, you, it's a, there's a precise state of mind that we can zero in on uh, and talk about regarding uh, mysticism and the mystical experience. And he, he gives it four characteristics. And I thought this is unbelievably important and, and interesting because you might find yourself one day picking up meditation or just walking in the forest or something 
And, you know, as Jonathan Haidt says in the happiness hypothesis, you might find that you're feeling larger than yourself, that there's this, the, you know, the, the, in, in terms of uh, human psychology, the best way to feel good in a way, or the best way to, to kind of get out of a, a depression or an anxiety or whatever, you know, difficulty you're going through mentally is to find an experience where you feel larger than yourself. So that's why so often we go to nature. So they did an amazing, amazing experiment. They took uh, Confederates, which are, you know, just uh, volunteers to be in a psychological experiment. And this was in Harvard. And they, they had a bunch of them, you know, they didn't know, uh, then they had a bunch of students that didn't know that these people were hired. So that one of these Confederates, one of these hired individuals was walking and then they tripped and they spilled a whole bunch of pencils on the floor. And they wanted to see how many of these students in a lecture, uh, you know, outdoor lecture by whatever was going on, would help this person with their pencils. And they tried to control for as many factors to be exactly the same, except for half the students, they were in front of a, like a, a, a concrete building when they saw this person fall, trip and fall. And the other half of the students were, you know, in by a beautiful tree. And this tree... Uh, or like by a whole bunch of nature. And who do you think was more likely to help this person pick up their pencils that they dropped or their pens? Nature. The one in nature. And amazingly, why is that? Because when you're in nature, you're around something that is like awe-inspiring and it, it kind of makes you feel larger than yourself. That's the best way I could put it this way. A lot of these scientists put it. And you stop thinking of yourself in a limited way. You stop saying, okay, I'm Michael Franco and I'm over here and they're over there. And you a little bit more are open to the continuity between yourself and other people, yourself and God, yourself and nature. And it opens you to those experiences of connectedness with other things. So the people were more likely to help by a significant margin if they were, you know, by the trees or whatever. Amazingly, they've done, you know, studies with psychedelics these days for treating mental illnesses and things like that. And the point of a psychedelic is literally to dissolve the ego, to dissolve the boundary between you and all these things around you. And the reason it's been so successful in treating mental illnesses, and I've, I gave a class on this on Tisha B'Av, is because of that, is because the source of mental illness and any real source of human pain and suffering comes from thinking of yourself as an isolated I. The second you dissolve that boundary, the second you have that experience of feeling larger than yourself, it is the cure to whatever you're going through. So today I had a, a giant uh, radiology test and it was, you know, I'm, I'm cramming, I'm, uh, I'm looking at MRIs, CTs, X-rays. I'm, I'm just, you know, cramming, cramming. Maybe I should have done a better job last week of studying so that I didn't have to cram. Uh, but I but I didn't. So I was studying a lot. And then what did I do? I went for a bike ride and I went all the way down to the to the beach because I live on W and Ocean Parkway. I went all the way down Ocean Parkway. I got to the beach and beautiful sky and the beach is so open and everything's open. And I my mood instantly went from like a six and a half to a 13, you know, and, and I just like I felt unbelievable. And I'm listening to music and I'm so happy and i'm realizing this is what it is you just kind of have to put yourself in a, in a situation where you're feeling larger than yourself and that's why social relationships are so important that's why a belief in in god and a, and a religious experience which is what this is all about if, if done right is is going to make you kind of 
that's what humility is really supposed to kind of do for you. Humility is, is to open yourself to that which is larger than yourself. All right, so these are the four qualities of the mystical experience that William James talks about. The first one, and it's so, it's so ironic to me that I'm saying these things, because what's the first one? Ineffability. What does that mean? What does that mean? You can't say it. You can't even talk about it. What am I doing here? It's so funny to me. I'm sitting here and I'm telling you guys about these things. And fundamentally, I'm not supposed to be doing that, quote unquote. But that's the point. I already told you from Lao Tzu that it's okay. That's my uh, that's my head pad from Rabbi Lao Tzu. Um, so a mystical experience defies expression uh, and words cannot fully relate it to others. It has to be experienced directly to be fully understood. So a lot of these people who come back from a mystical experience, all they want to do is tell people, I had this experience. It was unbelievable. And I, I experienced oneness with God, whatever that means. And people who have never had this experience will look at him and say, what planet are you from? What are you talking about? Let's crucify you like they did to Yeshu, right? I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't, I'm not saying anything about the veracity of his, uh, whatever he had. I have no idea. But, uh, you know, anybody who, uh, who has a problem with it, please send me an angry email, michaelfango95 at gmail.com. Yes. Don't don't go to what? What's the deal? What Jesus? You know how to say Jesus? Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll I'll be careful not to say in West Deal. It's a good thing when I say every time you have a prophet, he just needs more help. Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah, so that's the thing. I think if you think you're a prophet and you think that nobody else has this spark of prophecy in them, that's the problem. But if you think you're a prophet, I have I have to be very careful with what I say. <laughs> I have no real problem. I have no real. I'm not saying the hachamim don't have a problem. I'm not saying people in the other room don't have. I have personally will have no problem philosophically with you if you tell me that you had an experience where you felt you connected to God. I have no problem. I think that's beautiful. But if you tell me that you alone can do that and nobody else can, that's when I say there's a problem. So that's that's I think the difference between a, a, a mental illness. No, and you're saying you feel a connectedness to God. That's like the same as like. Most people say like, oh, yeah, I like, oh, like some lower level, not a real yeah, prophecy. Exactly. You didn't get a clear message from God. Ah, you got a, yeah. I felt close to God. Yes, exactly. So who knows? So, yeah. You can explain away a mystical experience with rationalism. Like if you chant these words enough times, your <laughs> neurons will fire that ah. will make you sense this feeling. Yes. And it all can be proven from a neurological science. Good. So, so that's we're gonna, that's the next quality of the experience. I'm so glad you said that. Perfect. Right in. The second quality is, so before we get to that, just the last thing about ineffability, the mystical experience cannot be directly transferred to others. Can a person who cannot see understand blue, he asks. That's the famous thing that people get very annoyed. Is my blue like your blue? But that's a little different than this. Can a, you can't try explaining blue to a blind person who's never seen Try explaining Mozart or any sound to a deaf person who's never heard. Yeah, but then you have deaf people who can make music. Ah, so Beethoven would listen to the, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't it's unbelievable. There are people who have this, like, sixth sense. Yeah, day. yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it is very cool. I don't really know. You know, I don't know why it reminds me of this. Maybe this has nothing to do with it. But in uh, dissociative identity disorder, we formerly known as multiple, multiple personality disorder, so there have been cases where one of the personalities, when they drink orange juice, they get hives. The other personality, they drink orange juice, no hives. One personality, they, they, uh, they have asthma. 
the other personality, no asthma. This is well-documented stuff. To me, this is mind-blowing. There's stuff about the human brain and neuro neurology and the way that it interacts with psychology that we have really a lot to learn about. And that, I really think that's the case. But just regarding what you were saying earlier, I think it's the same thing as saying that, okay, even though you, you can show the neurons that were fi firing that brought it about, the question is now, is my brain happening in the universe or is the universe happening in my brain? It's that same kind of dichotomy of experience and, um, you know, ob objectivity of the world or, you know, is um, what's the best way to put it is so that's experience versus objectivity, the brain happening in the, in the world. Uh, the best way I think is here is what he says here with the noetic experience. So this is something I say all the time. I think it's so interesting. He says, Anybody ever hear of the word noetic before? It's a very, it's, it's something you'll hear once in a while from a lot of these philosophers. Although mystical states are similar to states of feeling, they also seem to those who experience them to be states of knowledge too. They are experienced as states that allow direct insight into depths of truth that are unplumbed by our mere intellects. So they transcend the ability of the intellect to comprehend them. And they also transcend the ability of the, of the intellect to, to really say, oh, that's not just not true. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, and they carry with them what James describes as a curious sense of authority. So that's the important part of noetic, is that once a person has had a truly full-on mystical experience, you'll tell them, but you know that scientists can show you that, okay, you were taken out of the default mode network, which is certain uh, key brain areas that are normally firing. And then when you're having this physical experience, if you would have been hooked up to an EEG at the time, your you know, uh, prefrontal cortex would have been firing a little bit more and this area more and your, the, the, the hindrance between the prefrontal cortex and the visual cortex was not there. So therefore you were able to have an experience. The guy would tell you, listen, it, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. So the way I would think about it is that, you know, something my MCAT teacher once told me, he says, you know, Mike, there's a, there's a, a God center in the brain that if you stimulate it, the person will literally say, oh my God, I feel God. I feel God. He's like, doesn't that disprove God to you? I said, not at all. Why does that disprove God? Oh, so this was, I was say earlier that I was forgetting mind and matter. Where does one end and one begin? We don't really know. It's very, you can't, it's, there's kind of like this gradation. There's this very, you know, nondescript boundary between mind and matter. It's very hard for us to understand. So in a way, the brain could just be an antenna for understanding of these experiences. So there's a great story. Uh, I'm really, uh, you got, uh, if, if other people heard me saying this stuff, they really would throw brown tomatoes at me. Is this psychology? I hope not. I don't know. I, I, I mean, oh, I don't know, honestly. Really? You're I, not curious to know. William, no, oh, I'm very curious to know. I, I don't know. It's um, a very, I, I, you could look it I think yeah. he, I think he also is a big uh, follower of pragmatist philosophy, mm. which is like whatever helps you out. That's it's more of like a subjective thing. So he might have been a theist, but not believing his okay. theism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good it's a great question. I don't I don't know uh, I don't know what he says uh, about about God in particular. Um, but what was I going to just say? There's a, there's a great story that I wanted to say. So what I, I was talking about mind and matter. Oh, there's a story with the Dalai Lama that they, they went that, uh, these neuroscientists went to go study the brains of 
the people that were the master meditators and students of the Dalai Lama. And they said, we want to study the brains with an EEG of your best meditators. And, they, and, uh, and we want to learn from you guys how it is that the brain produces consciousness. So you know what the Dalai Lama responded? Before they even did the experiment, he said, that's an interesting hypothesis. What, what does that mean? Why did he say that? He said that because it's a hypothesis that the brain produces consciousness, where in reality, it might be, and it's just as plausible, that consciousness exists outside of the brain and is like a radio frequency, that when your brain is hooked up in a certain way, and when these neurons are firing in a certain way, can tap into that radio frequency. And we have no way of proving one or the other. And I have a feeling that they're both true in a way. And that's the paradox that I was saying again earlier. Is it the brain that produces consciousness or is the brain tapping into consciousness or is there something in, in the middle? It's very hard to really speak about. What does consciousness mean? So consciousness just means being aware that you're aware. Being... Yeah, it's, I would say metacognition. So like an animal, maybe you could say is conscious, but we are self-conscious. We, have, we know that we know. An animal knows, but you know that you know. Right. So it's an emergent quality. So then maybe I'm not, so what's, what's your point? Like, I know that I know. I always know that I know. I'm always conscious. Good. So now the question is, this, this consciousness that you have, this ability to be a sentient being, is that, is that only because, and so is your consciousness a product of the neurons firing in your brain? Or does there exist some spiritual consciousness out there that always exists and always existed and is beyond space and time? And your brain is not producing it. It's not a product of your brain, but it's something that your brain can tap into. You're saying you're an antenna. Exactly, because you're an antenna. So I'm saying that's what the Dalai Lama believes. My thoughts are coming from an antenna to what? Not, not necessarily your thoughts in particular, but just the raw experience of consciousness that's the best word awareness is another word because you mean like a meditative consciousness like a super how it's very hard to to put into words but it's it's it, yeah it's just something that's it's so imminent to to your experience that you you don't even realize that you're realizing it just the fact of experiencing itself that's what i'm saying the very fact that you know that you're experiencing that's that's the best way I could put it. I'm sorry for the lack of, of clarity on that, but but yeah, that's to me it's so interesting that you know this dichotomy of thought. Um, so he says these two characteristics will entitle any state to be called mystical in the sense in which I use the word. Two other qualities are less sharply marked, but are usually found. He writes these two additional characteristics are so it's, he, the first one is ineffability, and then the noetic. So it's something cannot be put into words. And that it is something that carries a lot of authority with it. So even if you tell the person, don't you realize that this is because you took uh, three tabs of LSD? Or don't you realize that this is because you meditated for 47 years and these are the neurons that fired? They'll say it doesn't matter, though. I knew, they'll tell you, I knew at that time that this was the truth. That's the, you could talk to a lot of these, you know, uh, or you could you could look at them up on YouTube or People who, who have had these mystical experiences, you know, every single time they'll tell you, like, I just knew that this was the truth. 
and and now that's it you know and like the, and there's there's no convincing them otherwise because that's the noetic quality the next two are transiency and passivity transiency means mystical states cannot be sustained for long except in rare instances half an hour or at most an hour or two seems to be the limit beyond which they fade into the light of common day. Memory of them is imperfect, but, but when they recur, they are immediately recognized. And from one occurrence to another, there is a development in the mystic of a deepening and increasingly rich inner life. Right. So it's just something that that cannot be sustained for so long. But and yet it's still something that can inform on the rest of their lives. So that's why with these psychedelic trials, they've been so effective. Because it's not just that they're not depressed during the experience of being on the psychedelic. That wouldn't be very useful if only during the six hours of being on mushrooms that they weren't, you know, depressed. It's the month afterwards that they, okay, they still feel good. You could say, okay, that's chemical. But even months and months later, just the memory of that experience, tapping into it, then just the memory alone is enough to put them back into this calmness and into this lack of depression it's an unbelievable you could if you really want to read more on it read michael pollan how to change your mind unbelievable book and that's you know where i've a lot of these things that i'm saying probably come from that really an unbelievable book i highly recommend it i mean when you're saying work with other nods too like they have one called pain modulation so oh do i need to give the guy really give him a steroid mm -hmm. or i just give him lidocaine like when we do a steroid injection in the back uh, he was oh we should give them the steroid we need the steroid that's what works long term and then they found no if i just give him the lidocaine yeah then because I turned the neuron off for three hours, the neuron doesn't come back on. The wow. Same way I reset it. Wow. Not I know that's crazy. Like, but, and that's separate from psychology. But yeah, they, they find that like neurons summarize they're firing for no reason. And when you shut them off a while, like resetting them. That's amazing. Come back the same that's it's really it's an incredible thing. Yeah, there, there's there's stuff about, I guess, maybe neuroplasticity. I don't even know what to call it. I'm not I'm not well read enough on it, but there's stuff that there's there's still to learn about the way that the neurons are firing and the way that they work and neuroplasticity and things like that but for sure um and then finally passivity james writes that in a mystical in mystical states of consciousness the mystic feels as if his own will were in abeyance this is so interesting this is what we spoke about earlier and indeed sometimes as if he were grasped and held by a superior power mystical experience is a form of self-transcendence uh, and the mystic will often say that she or he has merged with something greater and that what we experience as will is also merged with that greater one. St. Teresa of Avila, a drop of rain falling into a great ocean, fresh water into salt water, but once merged, how can they be distinguished? Right. So it's this feeling of being larger than yourself, like we spoke about, but also this feeling of, on the one hand, like I am completely destroyed. There is no me anymore. There's, there's no more self. There is just the self in a way. There is the oneness of all of it. And you are that. And that's, and, you know, there's a, a great book by Aldous Huxley, who lived uh, maybe like 50 years ago. He wrote, writes a book called The Doors of Perception. And that's talking about his own personal experience on mescaline, which is uh, the active ingredient in or the active compound in peyote which is something used in the Native American rituals. Um, and he, he talks about his experience with that. And he also has a book called The Perennial Philosophy. The Perennial Philosophy is amazing. I, you know, I, I listened to a part of it on Audible um, years ago. And it talks about how the veracity and the truth of the mystical experience must have something to it. And why? Because what if I told you that every mystical tradition in the whole world 
basically really is converging on this same kind of idea of the oneness of all, of the unification of these things, of this kind of an idea, whether it's a Sufi mystic, a Christian mystic, a Kabbalist, an Eastern guy, a Hindu, a Buddhist, you name it. And they're all experiencing this. So this is kind of going back to what I said earlier, like, okay, so then why am I, why am I, why not, why didn't I dedicate this whole session to let's meditate? Well, the truth is a part of me wants to do that because I love meditation and I love meditating with people. For me, it feels unbelievable. You know, it's like even better. Sometimes I want to meditate on my own, but other times I really want to meditate with people. But the other thing is, and I know this from listening to guys like Alan Watts on YouTube or Ram Dass and, it's amazing to me. I really push the boundaries of what I say on these classes. So please nobody kill me for saying that I listen to them. But I, you know, I find when I'm brushing my teeth in the morning, I can have an unbelievable experience when I'm listening to Alan Watts because his words are so well put together about these ideas of mysticism that they often help me slip a little bit into feeling like I'm just, you know, getting a flavor of it, a little taste of it, a hot fishy shim in a way. And it's so interesting to me that that's what words can sometimes do. And that's a little bit my goal for you guys. Like, you know, I don't think my words right now are going to kind of put you into a spell where you feel this, but at least maybe they'll lead you in a path towards something in your life where you're able to now say, let me run with this a little bit. Let me try to find experiences where I'll feel larger than myself, where I'll have a mystical experience. And to me, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and if my words are not working for you again, send me an angry email or, you know, bring rotten tomatoes and throw them at me next week. <laughs> feel free. Um, any questions up until now? Because this was basically all an introduction. And, and also, are you liking what I'm saying so far? Does it, does it resonate? Do you feel like it's something that, that is useful or you think like it's just pie in the sky? You're never even going to think about this anymore. Interesting. You think it's interesting? I'm so glad. Okay, really, I, I, I think this is so interesting. And my barometer for what I think you guys will think is interesting is what I think is interesting. So I hope I hope it's been interesting so far. So now we'll Michael, really delve into what Rabbi said. I have a, uh, I have a question for you. Mysticism. We don't have so much time. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll just continue this next week. Um, so that's a cliffhanger. But Michael. you know, he, he, he begins with a story about two yeshiva students. One of the yeshiva students... Um, is doing, you know, one thing. And then the other yeshiva student doesn't do it, you know, and he uh, completely disregards. So it's, it's Pesach time. And one yeshiva student is eating rice. The other yeshiva student is not eating rice. And there's something that one, the, the yeshiva student who's eating the rice can tell the guy who's not eating the rice as to why it's okay. What's that? What is the reason? Tradition. And he's going to say, I'm Sephardi. Right. So that so it's an amazing thing that, you know, there's this attempt today to force together different schools of Judaism that are clearly at odds. So within Judaism, we have different traditions and we know them as Sephardi, Ashkenazi. And that we, we accept that we we're completely fine with that. The Ashkenazi student in that scenario, if the guy tells him he's Sephardi would be completely if he's a nice guy, he'll can be completely understanding and it won't be a problem. But for some reason, hi, Rabbi, I know we're, we're wrapping up now. Um, but for some reason, that's not the case when it comes to uh, rationalism versus mysticism. We, we, we love to think of Judaism as this monolithic thing that's just everybody agrees upon what the philosophy is. But in reality, there is a schism that's, if not just as significant, more significant than the Sephardi Ashkenazi dichotomy. Um, 
So, you know, Judaism has this long history of disagreement. Rabbi Heschel, as Rabbi Hittery has taught in the past, has, uh, you know, Aspaklari Ashel Torah at the end of the, the net. It's a very long name of the book. Oh, exactly. And it's so interesting because he talks about the dichotomy of thought between the Bi'akiba and the Bishmael. So already from their time, we have different kind of philosophies towards life. And if that's the case, then, you know, it, and it continued for so long. And I heard a great class from Rabbi Dweck once where he talks about even Moshe and Korah, according to the Hachamim, are kind of like those two different ways of relating to truth, where Korah is more of the rationalistic and Moshe is more of the mystical. And hence the Midrashim of Korah asking Moshe, does a beget shikulot echelet need echelet? Or does a, a, a room full of sifret Torah need a mezuzah? And Moshe is saying yes, because he's more of the mystical approach and Korah has more of the rationalistic approach. So they've always been at odds. And there's a lot of revisionist history by especially the mystics today, uh, within Judaism at least, um, to try to write off a lot of what the rationalistic people are thinking and uh, as not, you know, uh, you know, substantial and true Judaism. Um, but the purpose of this class and really Rabbi Slifkin's book is going to be to try to show that Judaism has a very well-documented approach towards rationalism. And I gave all this talk about mysticism to begin. And why did I do that? Because I believe in rationalism. I, I, I consider myself a scientist if I'm going to be a doctor. I don't believe in just being illogical towards the world. But I do believe that to really lead a well-balanced lifestyle for me, I'm not saying for you guys, for me, I need to have some degree of mysticism in my life in terms of everything I spoke about in terms of meditation and feeling larger than myself through these things. And I think, you know, at, at that point, it just becomes a, a word game that we're playing in a, you know, a, a, what's the word, a semantic argument, because a lot of rationalists will have mystical elements of their lives and have social relationships. And that's in a way mystical. Um, but bottom line, stay tuned for next week. Thank you so much for coming. And, and uh, you know, thank you for listening to my very, um, you know, drawn out uh, ideas, but I think this is the most interesting thing in the world. And I hope you do too. So thank you very much. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.